It's good to see all of you out this morning. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. It's on page 784 in the Pew Bible, if you'd like to use that resource. We're continuing with a series we started last week titled Understanding the Ordinances. Uh, This was originally going to be a two-part series. Now it's going to be hopefully just a three-part series. Um, I'm going to finish the message on baptism today, and then two weeks from today we'll study the second ordinance, the continuing ordinance of the church, the Lord's Supper, and as it worked out, we'll actually be celebrating the Lord's Supper on that day. So I'm, I'm trusting that will be our enjoyment of the Lord's table will be all the more enhanced by our study of His Word that morning. Last week we saw from Scripture that the Lord Jesus ordained two ordinances or gospel ceremonies for the church to observe, baptism and the Lord's Supper. To observe them rightly, we must understand them correctly. I believe that Satan tries to confuse people about the ordinances in order to keep them from obeying the commands of the Lord in the way that he is instructed and thus receiving the blessing that comes from such obedience. So we want to, with the Holy Spirit's help, clear up some confusion and come to a crystallized understanding of the ordinances straight from the Word of God. Last week we saw that the ordinances complement the ministry of God's Word because whereas preaching and teaching are directed to the ear, the ordinances are directed to the eye. Uh, They are visible words, so to speak. Uh, They are symbolic representations of what Jesus Christ accomplished for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. So the ordinances complement the word. They are similar to the word of God in that they originate from God. Uh, They point to Christ in the gospel, and they must be appropriated by faith. But the ordinances are different from God's word in that The Word of God is essential for salvation, whereas the ordinances are not. Um, The Word of God creates faith, whereas the ordinances strengthen faith that is already there. And the third difference is that the Word of God goes out into all the world, whereas the ordinances are to be administered to those within the church. As Brad prayed earlier, the family of God, those who have already put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of Matthew 28, after his resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples. Look with me, please, at Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Baptism is often referred to as the initiating ordinance, whereas the Lord's Supper is referred to as the continuing ordinance. Baptism is the initiating ordinance because it is closely associated with the beginning of the Christian life. Last week, we talked about how baptism is where our faith goes public. Notice Jesus' command. 
make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. We see uh, who, who is being baptized? Disciples. Those who have already committed their lives to Christ are to obey the Lord in going public with that faith, testifying openly of their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, being unashamed of that faith. And that really is the essence of Christian baptism. And and all of this is reviewed from last week. We saw from Scripture that baptism is the church's act of affirming a believer's profession of faith in Christ with the symbolic application of water. In terms of how the water should be applied, we consider two key factors from Scripture. Number one, the meaning of the word baptizo, the Greek word baptizo, from which we get our English word baptized, and also the message that baptism is intended to convey. The word baptizo literally means to dip, to immerse, to submerge, to make fully wet. This is the original and primary meaning of the word. And this fits with the descriptions of the baptismal accounts we read in the New Testament. We read that John the Baptist was baptizing near Aenon where there was plenty of water. Uh, We see that when Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, that they went down into the water and then he baptized him and then they came up out of the water. And we saw that these descriptive accounts also are consistent with the message that baptism conveys. The believer's union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It also symbolizes our complete, total purification, cleansing from sin. And that's why we baptize believers by immersion here at Webster Bible Church. Now again, all this is a recap. The reason I wanted to continue this message today is I want to address this morning, some key errors regarding baptism. Going to the very essence of baptism itself. And the first error I want to address could be called the Roman Catholic view. Not because it is uh, unique to Roman Catholics per se, uh, but it is most prominent in the Roman Catholic Church. It originated with the Roman Catholic Church, and it continues to be practiced in the Roman Catholic Church today. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that baptism is necessary for salvation. And not only that, that the act of baptism itself conveys grace apart from any faith on the recipient of baptism or even the minister who is administering the baptism. The belief is summed up in the Latin expression ex opere operato, which literally means by the work worked. The idea is that the sacraments, not just baptism, but all the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church are self-sufficient and work apart from faith. So the thinking is this, that infants should be baptized since they don't need faith to be forgiven and baptism is necessary for salvation. In his book, Roman Catholic Theology and Practice, an Evangelical Assessment, Dr. Greg Allison explains, quote, Because baptism was considered to effect the forgiveness of sins, and because infants are born with Adamic guilt and corruption, original sin, they must be baptized in order to be saved, 
With this theology firmly in place by the beginning of the 5th century, infant baptism became the official practice of the church. And so the Roman Catholic Church officially sees baptism, water baptism, as a ritual of regeneration. They believe that the water cleanses the baby from original sin. But Scripture teaches no such thing. The Roman Catholic practice of baptizing babies is nothing more than a spiritual placebo. It is devoid of any power to save, yet it is administered to satisfy those who think it does, namely the parents of the infant. Scripture clearly states, for you are saved by grace through faith, and that not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. As I said, to be fair, the Roman Catholic Church is not the only religion that teaches baptism is necessary for salvation. This teaching is also prevalent in many Orthodox churches, as well as the International Church of Christ. To say baptism is necessary for salvation is very similar to the claims of Paul's opponents in Galatia who claimed that circumcision was necessary for salvation. Paul responded by saying that those who teach such a thing are preaching a different gospel. And he goes so far as to say that they are severed from Christ. We are saved by grace through faith. That's it. That's how we are made right with God. That is how God makes us right with Himself. Paul reiterates this truth in Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there's a second error I want to point out, and that is the Lutheran view. The reformer Martin Luther held strongly to the doctrine of justification by faith. But he never disentangled himself from the Roman practice of baptizing infants. And it would be helpful to remember that that was the religious world in which he lived. Uh, today we belong, uh, know of many churches that don't practice this. It, 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 but, but in Martin Luther's world, the Roman Catholic Church is pretty much all there was in Western civilization. But he never disentangled himself from the Roman practice of baptizing infants. So the question was put, well, how do you recognize the doctrine of justification by faith that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone with the practice of infant baptism, believing that it saves? Well, Martin Luther tried to resolve this difficulty by saying that somehow a baby must be able to believe. He didn't understand how that would work, but he understand that it did work. Luther wrote a little manual called The Small Baptismal Book. And in giving instructions for the baptismal ceremony, here's what he wrote. I want you to listen carefully. Martin Luther wrote this small baptismal book. He says, the little child shall be brought to the baptismal font, and the priest shall say, The Lord preserve your coming in and your going out from now and forevermore. 
Then the priest shall let the child through his sponsors renounce the devil and say, and he addresses the child, the name of the child, do you renounce the devil? Answer, yes. And all his works? Answer, yes. And all his ways? Answer, yes. Then the priest shall ask, do you believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Answer, yes. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was born and suffered? Answer, yes. Do you believe that in the Holy Spirit, one holy Christian church, the community of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and after death and eternal life? Answer, yes. Now remember, this is supposedly the infant answering these questions through his sponsors. Martin Luther continues his instructions after this Q&A, so to speak. At this point, he shall take the child and immerse it into the baptismal font. It's interesting that even up to the Middle Ages and beyond, they were still immersing infants, even when there was infant baptism. At this point, he shall take the child and immerse it in the baptismal font and say, and I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Then the sponsor shall hold the little child over the font and the priest while putting on the christening robe on the child shall say, the Almighty God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given birth to you for a second time through water and the Holy Spirit and has forgiven all your sins, strengthen you with his grace to eternal life. Amen. End quote. The Augsburg Confession, which is the primary confession of Lutheranism, states in Article 9, of baptism they teach that it is necessary to salvation and that through baptism is offered the grace of God and that children are to be baptized who, being offered to God through baptism, are received into God's grace. The official website of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, which is the most conservative branch of Lutheranism, says, and I quote, Lutherans believe that the Bible teaches that a person is saved by God's grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But the statement goes on to say, we believe that when an infant is baptized, God creates faith in the heart of the infant. End quote. Yet what does scripture say? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Remember, though it is the Word of God that creates faith, baptism strengthens faith that is already there, but it does not create faith. In Scripture, baptism always follows belief. It's the main thing. Baptism always follows belief. It is the church's act of affirming a believer's profession of faith in Christ with a symbolic application of water. Now I want to address a third view that hits pretty close to home because I have many friends and colleagues who hold this view. The Reformed Pado-Baptist view. This is the third, I believe, error concerning baptism. In case you haven't guessed it or knew this already, the prefix pado comes from the Greek word for child, pace. So pedo-baptism is infant baptism. What would be the official term for that? This view is held by many Anglicans, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and Methodists, which hold that infants should be baptized 
Now it's careful to distinguish this, not as a ritual for regeneration. They would not say that the baby is saved by being baptized, but as a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Now much could be said about this, but I think there's a helpful analogy that explains this. I believe they are correct on this point, seeing baptism as a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. You think of a wedding ceremony. The groom kissing his bride. Which, by the way, I almost forgot to do during our wedding. Can you believe that? There was like a hesitation on the part of the minister. And, and, and in Canada, you go down and sign the marriage covenant. So after we got to that point, had already exchanged our vows and exchanged rings or whatever, I started down the stairs and he said, you may kiss your bride. So it's almost like someone pushed a rewind button and I had to step back and kiss my bride. But the groom kissing his bride, what is that? Is it just an opportunity to kiss during the wedding ceremony? No, it's more than that. It is, it is the act by which he is signifying his love for her. It is a sign of his love, but it's more than a sign. In the wedding ceremony, it is also a confirmation of that love, an official seal of his love, much like the wedding ring. And that's what baptism is. As circumcision was the sign and seal of the Old Testament covenant, so is baptism in the New Testament. So on this point, the Paedo-Baptists are correct. We would be in agreement with them. In Colossians 2, 10-12, Paul tells believers, and this is the New Living Translation of the text Brad read earlier, So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. Notice the Direct correlation between the baptism of the believer and his faith in Christ. Uh, The outward water baptism is an expression of the inward baptism that has already taken place. There's a direct correlation between the baptism of a believer and his faith in Christ. Baptized because you trusted. And this is, I believe, where the Paedo-Baptists go awry. They teach that since Jewish parents circumcised their children to mark their entrance into the old covenant community, the people of Israel, so parents should baptize their children to show their entrance into the new covenant community, the visible church. The Westminster Confession of Faith states, and I quote, not only is Not only those that do actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. Now listen to this. The confession goes on to say, quote, The efficacy of baptism is not tied to the moment of time wherein it is administered. Yet notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Spirit to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto, according to the counsel of God's own will 
in his appointed time. End quote. So, whereas Roman Catholics teach that baptism actually causes regeneration, and Baptists teach that baptism symbolizes regeneration that has already occurred as evidenced by repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Reformed Paedo-Baptists see baptism as a symbol of probable future generation. That's how Wayne Grudem, a theologian, describes it, and I think that's an accurate terminology. Some call it presumptive regeneration, that we are going to presume that this child being raised by a Christian parent or Christian parents in the new covenant community of the church will grow to accept and receive and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, of which baptism is a sign and seal. By baptizing infants, if I could go back to that wedding analogy, I was thinking through this. Pado baptists are hosting the wedding ceremony prematurely. It presumes that regeneration will occur, whereas valid baptisms that in the New Testament affirm that regeneration has already occurred. Now to support their view, Pado baptists often refer to the household baptisms in the New Testament. And you can see a few of these in the book of Acts. Along with Peter's declaration in Acts 2.39 that the promised blessing of the gospel is for you and your children. And yet there is no record of any infants being baptized in the New Testament. So when they look at this household was baptized, they are assuming that there were infants. But the scripture doesn't say that infants were baptized. It simply says the household were baptized. Furthermore, as you look at these households that are being baptized or saved or uh, the Word of God's being preached to them, if you take all those household baptisms and read through the account, the, the sum total of them clearly indicate that the households heard the Word of God, believed and received the Word of God, and were baptized as a result. If you take the collective accounts together, and I encourage you to look at these through Acts, that would be the overall indication that is clearly given when you take those accounts all together. Furthermore, Pado baptists fail to account for the difference between the Old Testament sign of circumcision and the New Testament sign of baptism. One's entrance into the Old Covenant community, the people of Israel, was involuntary, physical, and external. That is to say, if you were born a Jew or belonged to a Jewish household, you were circumcised. You had no say in the matter. That marked your entrance into the old covenant community, the people of Israel. But one becomes a member of the new covenant community, the church, the true church, not by physical birth, but by spiritual birth. Jesus said, you must be born again. And by the way, he said that to a man, Nicodemus, who was a religious leader in Israel. He says, you are the teacher of Israel. Do not you know these things? So whereas one's entrance into the old covenant community, the people of Israel, was involuntary, physical, and external, one's entrance into the new covenant community, the true church, is voluntary, spiritual, 
and internal. There's a little diagram I want to throw up there that will help just kind of hopefully have that stick that in your brain. I was talking to a couple yesterday. I was taking a walk around the neighborhood just thinking through my sermon for today. And that's where um, I was thinking through Roman Catholic baptism being a spiritual placebo, you know, that, that, that was devoid of any real saving power, but is administered to those who, to satisfy those who think it does. And uh, I was just finishing my walk, kind of thinking along these things. I ran into a couple uh, that are fellow believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I was talking to them about these things, and they were both raised in the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, the, the gentleman told me that when he put his faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and, and he understood that baptism follows belief, and he wanted to obey the Lord in the matter, his parents got really upset about that because that wasn't part of their family's religious tradition. And he had already been baptized, as they saw it, as a baby. And he made a good point. He says, I have no memory of my baptism, and it was apart from any voluntary choice on my own. He says, now that I know the gospel, I have put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to profess my faith in obedience to the Lord as an act of obedience to honor him. And he was absolutely right. This takes us back to the essence of baptism. Baptism is the church's act of affirming a believer's profession of faith in Christ with a symbolic application of water. So Christian baptism is the outward ritual that reflects this inward reality. Now here's where we need to understand where the paedo-baptists are coming from. They would say that yes, the outward circumcision though was to reflect the inward circumcision of the heart that was to take place. That is taught in the Old Testament and they are absolutely correct on that point. The difference is the sign was given before any heart circumcision took place. It marked their entrance physically and externally in the people of Israel. The difference with New Testament baptism is, yes, it does signify an internal spiritual reality, but it is meant to be given after that internal reality is already there. I hope that makes sense to you. And that's where I believe they are wrong. Christian baptism is the outward ritual that reflects an inward reality once that reality has already become a reality in the life of the person being baptized. And this takes us back to the essence of baptism. Baptism is the church's act of affirming a believer's profession of faith in Christ with the symbolic application of water. Now, I know I've covered a lot these last several moments. And I know that there are some sitting here today who come from a Catholic background or an Orthodox background or maybe a Reformed Pado-Baptist background. And you're thankful for the upbringing that you had. You, you love your parents. You're thankful for the religious instruction that you received in your home. And you might be, as a result of that, reluctant to examine your view, to consider changing your view, to be open to what is being taught from the Scriptures today and last Sunday. I want you to know I empathize with that. I sympathize with that. As best as I could, I went to God's Word and, 
and had my own views re-examined and challenged in light of Scripture. I just didn't assume that I was correct. I want you to know I empathize with you. And I want to encourage you by sharing with you a little story. Did you know that one of the greatest missionaries in history went through this exact same experience? Many of you will know the name when I say it. Adoniram Judson. One of the first missionaries ever sent out from America. Well, Adoniram Judson was the son of a Congregationalist pastor. And as Congregationalists, the Judsons believed in infant baptism. Not as a regenerating work that the water saves you or cleanses you from original sin, but as, as a sign and seal of the Holy Spirit. And Adoniram Judson, by the time he was in college, had cast off the Christian faith, but through a series of circumstances and the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, he came to embrace Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior as a young adult, and very shortly thereafter got married and went to the mission field. In his biography on Adoniram Judson, Courtney Anderson describes what happened to Adoniram Judson as he went through this struggle. He was on his way with his wife, Ann Hasseltine was her, her maiden name, he called her Nancy. They were crossing the ocean to go to India, and from there they were going to go on to Burma, which is modern-day Myanmar. But on their way to India, they were going to be with William Carey, also known as the father of modern missions, and he was a famous Baptist missionary. So Adoniram Judson, knowing that they were going to be with this famous Baptist missionary, wanted to go to Scripture to kind of strengthen his arguments so that when they talked about baptism, he would have a defense of his paedo-Baptist view. And so as he studied baptism in the Bible, he hoped to counter William Carey's arguments as a Baptist. Courtney Anderson describes what happened as Adoniram and his wife studied baptism as they were crossing the ocean on this voyage to India. With his usual vigor, Adoniram plunged into a, plunged into a study of the matter. So far as he could see, the membership of a church was restricted to the individuals who gave credible evidence of being disciples of Christ. Baptism was mentioned always in connection with believing. But this was the Baptist position. It worried him. He began saying to his wife, Nancy, I am afraid that the Baptists might be right. After they arrived in Calcutta, Adoniram and Nancy were invited to stay with some English Baptist missionaries who had, and I'm continuing to quote, a fair-sized library which contained a good many books dealing with baptism. This was fortunate. Whether the word baptism meant sprinkling in infancy or immersion by voluntary decision at the age of discretion was a question that had been occupying Adoniram more and more. With a fine-sized library in his home, Adoniram seized the opportunity to study the question thoroughly and settle it in his mind once for all. Nancy was alarmed. And this is her quote in her diary. I have tried to have him give it up and rest satisfied with his old sentiments, and frequently told him that if he became a Baptist, I would not. 
He, however, said he felt it his duty to examine closely a subject on which he felt so many doubts and determined to read candidly and prayerfully and to embrace the truth, however mortifying, however great the sacrifice. Because remember, they were missionaries sent out by congregational churches. In self-defense, Nancy began to explore the Bible herself. Surely it said something in favor of infant baptism. For two or three days, she pored over it, comparing the Old Testament with the New, trying to find some foundation for the congregational practice, which she had accepted all her life. With growing dismay, she had to admit that she could find nothing. And by now, under Adoniram's influence, she had become convinced that the issue was much more than a mere matter of form, regardless of which viewpoint was right. Nancy was horrified. If he should renounce his former sentiments, he must offend all his friends at home, hazard his reputation, and what is still more trying to be separated from his missionary associates. But there was no use arguing with Adoniram. Within a few weeks, she had to admit that Mr. J feels convinced from Scripture that he has never been baptized and that he cannot conscientiously administer baptism to infants. As to herself, she was still spending hours in their room pouring over the gospel and leafing through the many tomes in the library. But I must acknowledge that the face of Scripture does favor the Baptist sentiments. I intend to persevere in examining the subject, and I hope that I shall be disposed to embrace the truth, whatever it may be. It is painfully mortifying to my natural feelings to think seriously of renouncing a system which I have been taught from infancy to believe and respect and embrace one which I have been taught to despise. Oh, that the Spirit of God may enlighten and direct my mind, may prevent my retaining an old error or embracing a new one. Within a few more days, Adoniram's sentiments crystallized. He must be baptized and become a Baptist. Nancy, after a little longer struggle, decided that she agreed with him. Adoniram and Nancy were baptized by immersion on September 6, 1812. Thus, wrote Nancy, we are confirmed Baptists, not because we wanted to be, but because truth compelled us to be. And that's their story. So let me talk in closing about our experience of Christian baptism. For believers, the act of baptism symbolizes our union with Christ by faith in his death, burial, and resurrection for us as well as our complete and entire purification from sin. Believer's baptism is a God-ordained ceremony that brings many benefits. Let me share with you three of them briefly. Number one, and most importantly, baptism honors the Lord. Baptism honors the Lord. After his resurrection, Jesus told his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And ever since that time, the Christian church has been honoring the Lord by baptizing believers, baptizing disciples. The first command that Christ gives to a new believer is, be baptized. Go public with your faith testifying to your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We honor the Lord by obeying Him. And conversely, we dishonor the Lord when we don't obey Him. Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, Why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? If you want to honor the Lord, do what the Lord says. Baptism, believer's baptism, honors Christ. Number two, baptism strengthens your faith. Just like your body gets stronger with exercise, so does your faith. Baptism exercises your faith in this way. You have to trust the Holy Spirit to give you the boldness it takes to openly declare your allegiance for Christ. Especially if you are not a public speaker. The, the idea of getting in front of people and, and saying anything uh, can terrify some people. And yet, having been a pastor for more than 30 years, I can assure you that some of the greatest joy I see is after the baptismal service when a believer says, I didn't think I could do it, but God gave me the courage I needed. And they were so encouraged and emboldened and strengthened in their faith for the Lord Jesus Christ, then they go out and continue to share him with others, knowing that God has given them the strength to do that. You see, by expressing your faith, you are actually exercising your faith and thus strengthening it. So baptism strengthens your faith. And thirdly, baptism helps you to share your faith. Baptism is a ready-made opportunity for evangelism for believers. Family members and friends who would otherwise never come to church will gladly attend a baptism. Your baptism because they care for you. Through your testimony, your profession of faith in Christ, they will hear the truth about Jesus. The good news that he died and rose again to save sinners like us. They will hear how Jesus saved you. They will hear what Jesus means to you. They will hear you testify of what wonderful things the Lord has done for you. And then they will behold through your baptism a beautiful picture of the gospel as you are pictured dying, being buried, and raised with Christ by faith to a new and holy life. Complete and thorough cleansing from sin to live a new life unto the Lord. As one author put it, they will see that just as you are plunged underwater and rise up again, so Jesus was plunged into death and emerged from it victorious. And all those who are united to Christ share in his victory. Because through his death and resurrection for us, our sins are forgiven and we are reconciled to God. So if you were baptized as an infant or any time prior to consciously putting your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, whether it was in a Catholic church, a Protestant church, an Orthodox church. Scripturally, the fact is, you have never been truly baptized. I'm just telling you the truth. Because in Scripture, baptism always follows belief. It is a public expression and profession of your faith in Christ. This profession is not one that your parents make for you. You don't do it just because your parents want you to do it or because the church expects you to do it. It is your profession. It is an open declaration that you choose to make 
so that others know that you are loyal, that you are a follower, that you are a disciple, that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. The church's responsibility is to affirm your credible profession by baptizing you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, if you'd like to know more about baptism or even beginning a relationship with God, those are the first two things on our connection card under the section I'd like more information about. And we put those at the top because they are fundamentally so important. I'd like to know more about beginning a relationship with God. And under it, I'd like to know more about being baptized. So you can take one of those connection cards, simply put your name on it, any contact information if we don't already have it. Check one or both of those boxes and put them in the box in the lobby uh, when you leave, and we will be sure to get in touch with you. I also want you to know that on September 24th, that's a Saturday at 8 o'clock a.m., we will be hosting a one-hour seminar on baptism uh, to be to prepare you for a baptism service to be held later this fall. So uh, you are invited to that. We'll be promoting that in the coming weeks. But if you want to go ahead and mark that down, that'll be Saturday, September 24th, 8 o'clock a.m., a one-hour seminar on baptism. We would love to have you join us. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your precious word which shows us the salvation that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for how baptism portrays the union that we have by faith with you in your death, burial, and resurrection, and the total cleansing that you provide for all who trust in you. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would clear up any confusion about this gospel ordinance and that those who have never been baptized as a public profession of their faith would commit themselves to doing so in obedience to Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for your love, your kindness, your patience, your grace, and your mercy toward undeserving sinners like us. And we rejoice today that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And it's in the name of of Jesus, that we pray all these things with thanksgiving. Amen.